As we start today's message, I want to ask you a question. Do you think that life is supposed to be easy or life is supposed to be hard? A mixture. Very nice. Yes. We have the saying, life wasn't meant to be easy. So we kind of have a default expectation that that might be true. But if you think about the culture around us, is it telling us that life life is meant to be easy or life is meant to be hard? I think if you look at advertising in particular, it tells us life is supposed to be very easy. We're supposed to live lives where we're comfortable, where everything goes well, where we're happy, where nothing goes wrong. Especially advertising tells us if you buy this, then your life will be better. You will be more comfortable, you will be more happy, you'll be more fulfilled. And so the messages that we consistently get from culture tells us that life is supposed to be easy. And this is a really, really important question as we talk about the topic of suffering. Because if our mindset is that life is supposed to be easy, then that will mean that we have some significant challenges with the idea of suffering. But if we think that life is maybe meant to be challenging and that that's a normal thing for us, then that will change some of our perspectives as well, as we'll see as we go through today. So we're walking through uh, the book of First Peter, and uh, we've taken some time to read this letter that Peter wrote to the early church, to the people who had scattered from Jerusalem to an area called Asia Minor primarily, which is modern-day Turkey, and he's giving them a lot of advice about what it means to be able to live as people who are wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus with all the challenges that they've got. So, so far we've looked at four different topics. We've looked at the theme of hope. We've looked at the theme of holiness, we've looked at the theme of what it means to be chosen, and we've looked at, last week, the theme of submission. And in particular, what we've tackled is the reality that Peter talks a lot about what's going to happen, which is why the theme of our series is The Future Starts Now, to say that in the future, at some point as we reach eternity, all of these things will be true for us. But Peter's challenging us to say, what does it look like actually for us to embrace those things in the here and now? Today that changes slightly because we obviously don't expect that in eternity we are going to experience suffering, but there's a mindset about what it looks like for us to embrace eternity as we then face suffering in the here and now. So if you haven't been around the last few weeks or if you want to catch up, you can listen to our messages online, Facebook page, through our podcast, and uh, catch up on the things that we've talked about so far. Inside of Care and Connection, you have your teaching notes, and so if it's helpful for you to jot things down as we go through today's message, uh, then please feel free to do that. So we begin in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Peter says, To conclude, you must all have the same attitude and the same feelings, Love one another and be kind and humble with one another. Do not pay back evil with evil or cursing with cursing, but instead pay back with a blessing, because a blessing is what God promised to give you when he called you. So in some ways this wraps up some of the themes that Peter was talking about that we looked at last week, where he talked about how we interact with government leaders and uh, people who are in positions of authority, where we talked about what that looks like in a workplace context, and where we talked about what that looks like in a family context, particularly in terms of marriage. But now Peter zooms out even further and says, how do you interact with everyone around you, but in particular the people who are a part of your church family? And he gives us these really, really helpful keys for what it looks like and themes that we should focus on. So the first thing he says is that we should have the same attitude, which means that we should be of the same mind, that we should have a sense of unity, that we should live in harmony with one another. And this is a key focus throughout the New Testament. This is one of the themes that comes up all the way through, is that as people who follow Jesus, there should be a sense of us being united, 
a sense of us all being on the same page, a sense of us looking at the world the same way as we look at Jesus, which is why we talk about being Jesus-centred, that we start with Jesus. And then there's obviously all sorts of things that we believe and different things that we do, but can we stay united around Jesus? The sense of being in harmony is a really, really helpful image uh, that comes up as we talk about this. And when we think about harmony, we think about an orchestra, for example. An orchestra where you have all sorts of people who are playing all sorts of different instruments and are often playing completely different parts. And yet when that all comes together, there's this beautiful sense of harmony, this one noise that comes together. So when we think about harmony, that's a helpful image for us to think about us all playing our own roles and looking at the world from our own perspectives But can we allow that to be joined together as we centre on Jesus so that it creates this beautiful noise? Another helpful example is to think about a sports team that is all completely in sync. They're all on the same page, all united, and then there's this sense of flow that they have that's really, really incredible. Now you can see that up there I have a picture of the Crows women's team. Yes, there's a big reason for that. I didn't think that putting up a picture of the Crows men's team as we're talking about unity was something that was a super helpful illustration for us right now. But the other issue was every photo that I tried to find of the Crows had players who were not on the team anymore because so many people have left. So uh, maybe that's an interesting comparison. But our women's team, we can say, are definitely a team who we see flowing together, being on the same page, having the same mind and being able to then work together. So we're called to have the same attitude, that even though we play different roles, we have different mindsets, can we join together to be able to focus on Jesus and then move forward as one? Peter then says that we should have the same feelings. And so this is often talked about as compassion or empathy or sympathy, which is really the process of us intentionally putting ourselves in someone else's shoes and saying, what is life like for that person? And therefore, how do I respond in a way that's helpful for them? And we talk about having the same feelings. We're trying to say, how do I connect with the people around me to understand what's going on for them and then to be able to serve them in an appropriate way? Peter also talks about us loving one another. And uh, if you're aware that in the Bible there are a number of different ways, we have one word, love, that means four different things in the New Testament. And in this context, Peter's actually using the word that talks about brotherly love. So that sense of love in a family context, which is why we talk about being spiritual family, the sense of us being together, having a sense of connection, having a sense of authenticity, a sense of belonging that kicks in for us. This, again, is one of the key themes that we see throughout the New Testament. This idea of saying, do we love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? Peter then also challenges us to be kind, which means being tender-hearted, doing kind things for one another, doing good things for one another. To be humble, which means that we're courteous and we're friendly, uh, but really is about saying we don't treat anyone as better than us or worse than us. We see each other as equal because if Jesus has done the same thing for all of us, then we're all actually the same. So no one's better than anyone else and no one's worse than anyone else. That's what humility really looks like. So do we look at each other as equal and treat each other that way? But then Peter says something really interesting. He says, don't pay back evil with evil or cursing with cursing which is a fairly natural response when someone attacks us. Our first response is normally to attack back. But he says, instead, pay back with a blessing. Do good to the people who do wrong to you. 
This is a really good follow-on from some of the stuff that we talked about last week. But I love the way that Peter's basically saying, if you're going to retaliate when someone attacks you, retaliate with love. Retaliate with blessings. It's kind of this mindset to say, when we're attacked, there's a sense of aggression that kicks in for us. So be aggressive with the way that you bless and love the people around you. Be really intentional about the way in which you respond with love and blessing. And why should we do that? Because God has blessed us. We don't do any of this because we're trying to earn God's love or we're trying to earn God's favour. We do it because we've been given so much. And so this is a really beautiful picture. Can you imagine what it would look like if we, the majority of the time, functioned this way? Where we were completely united in harmony, had a sense of oneness. We were compassionate and sympathetic, thinking about how other people are feeling and responding to them out of that loving one another as brothers and sisters, performing acts of kindness for one another, treating other people the way that we want to be treated, seeing each other as equal, and repaying any evil that's done to us. When people mess up, when people hurt us, responding with a sense of blessing. Can you imagine what that would look like if we lived that out, not just amongst ourselves, but then in all of the different circles in which we walk throughout the week? Imagine what would happen if the ripples got sent out that were focused on this. But then Peter shifts gear and then starts to talk about suffering. Seems like a bit of a strange change. He's been talking about all these good things that we can do for one another and then opens up the topic of suffering in verse 13. He says, who will harm you if you're eager to do what is good? But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, how happy you are. So Peter says, who will harm you if you're eager? Other translations actually talk about if you are followers of doing what is good. So if our major focus is doing good things, who at the end of the day is actually going to harm us? Ultimately, it may actually produce some real good. We talk about being peacemakers or being peace creators. Can we be people who when others attack us, when we go through hard things, even if we've been doing the right thing, can we respond with good? Can we be people who help to diffuse situations? Can we be people who do so much good around us that other people look at that and say, I want to be a part of that too. Someone did something really kind for me, so now I'm going to do something kind for someone else. So that might be the way that people respond when we do good things. But Peter says, even if that doesn't happen, even if you suffer for doing right, how happy you are which is really, really challenging for us to think about. comes back to that question about whether life is supposed to be easy or hard. Are we just happy when everything's going well? When suffering comes our way, what's our response? Even if other people don't respond well to us, we can still be people who are full of joy, people who are content, because we know that there's something bigger going on. There is a bigger perspective that we can look at. Suffering is something that can lead us to a place of hope, as we talked about in the first week. If we're secure in the sense of who God says we are, if we're secure in what God has done for us, then no one ultimately can hurt us in a permanent way. If we've got that eternal perspective, then no one can hurt us. No one can get in the way of us having that sense of joy that comes from Jesus. Peter continues to unpack this, where he says, Don't be afraid of anyone and don't worry, but have reverence for Christ in your hearts and honour him as Lord. 
Be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope you have in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are insulted, those who speak evil of your good conduct as followers of Christ will become ashamed of what they say. Again, this is really challenging if we actually take seriously what Peter's saying here. Don't be afraid of anyone and don't worry. And think back to what we've talked about, about the context of the people that Peter's writing to. People who follow Jesus, who have chosen to escape from Jerusalem because of the persecution that they're facing. Some of them in fear of their lives. And Peter says, don't be afraid of anyone and don't worry. That's pretty challenging. Now, when we talk about not worrying, this is one of the things that can cause some struggles for us because all of us experience things at times in our lives that cause worry. We've talked before about how the biblical understanding of worry is actually the idea of not giving something a second thought. So obviously when something bad happens to us or there's stress in our lives or there's things that are going on, there is a sense of something that kicks in inside of us, anxiety, worry, all of those sorts of things. But the challenge that Jesus gives us and that he's then repeated throughout the New Testament is not to give that a second thought and a third thought and a fourth thought, not to obsess over those things. When we're challenged to not worry, we're challenged to not keep thinking about it over and over and over again so that it then has an impact on us. So that's what Peter says. Who have you got to be afraid of if you keep an eternal perspective and don't obsess about stuff that's happening? Yes, it might cause an initial reaction, but then remind yourselves about the eternal hope that we have. And so how should we do that specifically? Well, he says, have a reverence for Christ in your hearts and honour him as Lord. If we put Jesus as Lord, that means we're saying Jesus is the leader of my life. Jesus is the one who sets my priorities. Jesus is the one who sets my sense of purpose. Jesus is the one who directs everything about what I'm focused on. This is very different to I'm just going to live my life and sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on it. This is saying Jesus is the most important thing in my life. And when we put him first, that allows us to remove the fear and to stop obsessing and over-worrying about things that we don't need to. But then Peter says, be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope that you have. And this is a verse that might be familiar to a lot of us. It's one of the key verses that we talk about. If anyone ever asks you why you believe in Jesus, you need to be ready with an answer. Make sure you've got an answer. But sometimes we can feel a little bit concerned about that because we just think we have to be ready to give an answer for what we believe. And so we can think we have to have all of the answers that anyone's ever going to ask us. But that's not actually what Peter says. He says, be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope that you have, which is a really helpful thing for us to think about. Are we people of hope? Are we people who have a different perspective? And if people then say to us, there's something different about you, particularly in the way that you deal with suffering, particularly in the way that you deal with worry, particularly in the way that you respond when people hurt you, are we able to give an answer for the hope that we have? for the reason why we try to rise above that. But Peter says, whatever our response is, we need to make sure that we do that with gentleness and respect. We're not rude, we're not insensitive, we're not offensive in our responses to that, but we just gently explain there's something bigger going on. I have a different perspective than just what's happening in this set of circumstances that enables me to be able to move forward. 
In verse 17, Peter then continues to unpack this theme where he says, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if this should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once and for all, a good man on behalf of sinners, in order to lead you to God. He was put to death physically, but made alive spiritually. And so there's an important note here that Peter reminds us that there is a difference between the suffering that comes from the choices that we make when we do evil and the suffering that comes from the choices that we make when we do good. When we wrestle with this question about suffering, and in particular a question that I'm sure you've heard people ask, if God's so good, why is there suffering in the world? We need to stop and recognise that the vast majority of suffering that most people experience is because of the choices that we make. It ultimately comes back to selfishness and to brokenness that we cause. Whether that's abuse that is then heaped on somebody else, that's our choices. That's not God who's doing that. But even as we think about really big picture things, poverty in the world is caused because of our choices. War and conflict is caused because of our choices. One of the topics that's been in the news a lot over the last couple of weeks is even things like natural disasters. How much of that is because of our choices, because of the things that we've done to the environment or because of the things that we haven't done to the environment. The choices that we make have a huge impact that often lead to a lot of the suffering questions that we say, God, how can you possibly, when it's got nothing to do with God? We're the ones who cause the majority of that suffering. So, Peter says, just be conscious of that reality. But he says, there are times when we suffer for doing good. And there are many of us who are part of our church family who I know that's the case, that the suffering that we're going through, particularly physical suffering, is often not because of the choices that we've made. And so Peter says, even when you suffer for doing good, recognise that God is with you in the midst of that that God is able to use those difficult times to allow you to grow, to allow you to develop, to lead to a greater good. And there are countless stories that all of us are aware of, of people who've gone through really, really difficult times that has then produced amazing results. People who've gone through really, really hard things that have caused a massive change in all sorts of different areas in the world. The key result is often that through suffering, we throw ourselves on God in a new way, in a deeper way that wouldn't happen otherwise. I don't know about you, when life's going well, God can kind of shift a little bit over to the side. Hit the cruise control button, just kind of motor along and everything's fine. It's in those moments when things are hard that I find myself throwing myself on God in a completely deeper way. We grow the most, often in those dark and difficult times. And Peter then reminds us that all of this is something that Jesus went through as well. That Jesus ultimately understands when we go through difficult times. And ultimately good came out of the suffering that he went through as well. Now Peter at this point seems to go a little bit off the rails. So these next few verses that we're going to look at are some of the most complicated and confusing verses that we have in all of the New Testament. So we'll read them, then we'll try and unpack them and see how we go. So first part of it is what we just read. Jesus was put to death physically, but made alive spiritually. 
And in his spiritual existence, he went and preached to the imprisoned spirits. These were the spirits of those who had not obeyed God when he waited patiently during the days that Noah was building his boat. The few people in the boat, eight in all, were saved by the water, which was a symbol pointing to baptism, which now saves you. It's not the washing off of bodily dirt, but the promise made to God from a good conscience. It saves you through the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone to heaven and is at the right side of God, ruling over all the angels and heavenly authorities and powers. So this is part of the reason why we do book series, because otherwise there's no way we'd ever look at these verses, (laughs) because they make no sense whatsoever. But we do these book series because we have to. We have to look at every verse that we're presented with. So there's lots of questions that come up out of this. Is Peter saying that after Jesus died, he then went... And he preached to the spirits of those who were imprisoned. And if he did say that, then what does that mean? Does that mean after Jesus died, he went and preached to the spirits of those who were in prison, as in literally in prison somewhere? Or is Jesus going and preaching to the people who are not in heaven? So the people who are in hell, whatever that looks like. And if so, is Peter saying that Jesus just went and preached to the spirits of those who were around before Noah? Because that sort of seems to be what he's saying here. So does this mean that there is a chance that after we die, there is actually an option for us to hear Jesus preach to us and to rescue us and to save us? Or is that just for the people before Noah? If that's the case, how come it's not the people in the whole Old Testament? Like surely if Jesus was going to go and preach to everyone who didn't know about him, it would be everyone before Jesus, not just before Noah. So this is well known if you read any commentary. It will say these are some of the most complicated and confusing verses in the whole of the New Testament. Martin Luther, who is one of the most famous and most respected theologians, says this is perhaps the most obscure verse in the New Testament and even I don't understand what it means. So if Martin Luther doesn't know, I don't know either. Most people, what they would say though, is that Peter was just trying to make a point by using an example. He did it in a fairly flawed way, but it's kind of there. And this is helpful because this is not supposed to be theology that we then use in every single circumstance. So whenever we tackle a verse that's a bit complex, what we need to do is look at what's happening just before it and just after it, because that will generally help to iron out some of the confusion. So the key focus of what Peter's been talking about is that Jesus suffered even though he didn't deserve it. But through Jesus' suffering... Ultimately, God's will was achieved and people were rescued from their lives of selfishness and brokenness. So when you think about that, Noah is a really great example because we know that Noah suffered because he didn't do anything wrong. He was building a boat that God told him to build and he was mocked by a whole bunch of people around him. So that whole process was really hard for him to go through. He suffered a lot, but he was just doing what God asked him to do. But ultimately, through his obedience and his suffering, people were saved and rescued. So when you use that as an example, it's kind of a helpful thing for us to be able to recognise. But we don't then zoom out and say, oh, okay, so this is theology now for us in every circumstance about what happens after we die. It is just an example that's used. Peter also talks about this idea that baptism is what saves us, which is not something that we believe either. We believe that baptism is this symbolic demonstration of our choice to follow Jesus. And there's this beautiful, rich symbolism that's a part of it. 
but Peter's just using the example of Noah as another example of that, rather than saying, okay, so baptism and water is what saves you. But ultimately, it is all a bit strange, so we're going to move on. So we're going to skip ahead a few verses now uh, and come back and look at those next week, uh, because Peter continues the theme of suffering a little bit later on in chapter 4. In verse 12, he says, My dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful tests that you are suffering as though something unusual were happening to you. So this is a really great challenge to us. But Peter says, why are you surprised that you're suffering? Why is your mindset that suffering is something that's foreign? goes back to that first question that we asked. Is life supposed to be easy or is life supposed to be hard? Jesus never promised us that following him would be easy. In fact, he said the complete opposite of that. And we should recognise that if we're going to live in a countercultural way that is different to the cultural norms around us, that should produce suffering in us. This is something that we should expect. Here's a whole bunch of verses that Jesus said. Happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Now I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's a clear expectation that we have enemies and people who are persecuting us if we're called to love them and pray for them. If you want to come with me, you must forget yourself, take up your cross every day and follow me. If the world hates you, just remember that it hated me first. I've told you this so that you will have peace by being united to me. The world will make you suffer, but be brave, I have defeated the world. Over and over again, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you should expect that it's going to be hard. You should expect that suffering's going to come your way. That's the default expectation that we'd have. So Peter says, don't be surprised if you suffer, as if something strange and unexpected is happening. And I do wonder, for me, how much that would change my mindset. If I actually expected that suffering was a normal part of what my life was going to be about, how much would that shift the way that I respond when difficult things come my way? If I saw that suffering was normal, Instead of thinking that suffering was God punishing me for something I'd done wrong, or God withholding something from me because clearly I wasn't getting things right, or because God was ignoring me, or something else along those lines, if I understood that suffering was normal, how much would that change the way that I respond to hard circumstances that come up? Peter then says in verse 13, Rather be glad that you're sharing in Christ's sufferings, so that you may be full of joy when his glory is revealed. Happy are you if you're insulted because you're Christ's followers. This means that the glorious spirit, the spirit of God, is resting on you. Peter says, be glad if you're sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. Be glad that that shows that you are authentically following Jesus. So challenging that about if our lives are really comfortable... Are we following Jesus passionately enough? What we're going through allows us to empathise with Jesus, to understand what Jesus went through, to deepen our sense of connection with him. Ultimately, when we experience suffering, we can recognise that Jesus understands everything that we're going through. And we'll take some time to reflect on that over communion in a few minutes. Jesus himself said, Happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of lies against you because you're my followers. Be happy and glad for a great reward is kept for you in heaven. 
Peter then returns back to his earlier thoughts where he says, if you suffer, it must not be because you're a murderer or a thief or a criminal or a meddler in other people's affairs. However, if you suffer because you're a Christian, don't be ashamed of it, but thank God that you bear Christ's name. It's interesting what Peter lumps together there. That again, he says, if you suffer, don't let it be because of anything that you're doing wrong. And he says, don't let it be because you killed someone, which is pretty good advice. Don't let it be because you stole something from someone else, also good advice, or because you're a criminal. But then what's the fourth thing that he says there? Don't let it be because you're a meddler in other people's affairs. Sometimes the suffering that we experience is because we spend too much time giving a second and a third and a fourth thought to what's going on for other people that's got nothing to do with us ultimately, and that can produce suffering. So Peter says, stay away from that as well. But ultimately, if you suffer because you're following Jesus, embrace it and thank God that you've got the character of Jesus growing within you. And finally, Peter says that suffering for us can lead to a deeper sense of trust in God as well. He says some verses that initially seem a bit complex, but we'll unpack them too. The time has come for judgment to begin, and God's own people are the first to be judged. If it starts with us, how will it end with those who do not believe the good news from God? As the scripture says, it's difficult for good people, if it's difficult, no, it is difficult for good people to be saved. What then will become of godless sinners? So then, those who suffer because it is God's will for them should by their good actions trust themselves completely to their creator who always keeps his promise. The challenge that Peter's throwing out here is to say if we think as people who follow Jesus that it's hard for us to embrace suffering, how much harder is it for people who don't have faith? And this is a question that I always wrestle with. The people around us, in the neighbourhoods around us, who don't have anything else to focus on, when they encounter something difficult in their lives, where do they turn? Without a sense of hope, without a sense of a bigger, bigger perspective, where do they turn for answers? Where do they find a sense of meaning in their suffering? Lots of us have been to funerals of people who don't want to have faith as a part of their funeral or their family makes a decision to not have faith as a part of their, fu- their funeral. And we know that while there might be a great sense of celebration for the person's life, there's this sense of hopelessness. What was the point? What happens now? And for the people who are left behind and the grief that they're going through and the suffering that they're enduring, what are they left with? So Peter says, if you think it's hard to suffer... And you have this great perspective. You have this great sense of hope because of what Jesus has done. Imagine what it's like for the people around you who don't even have that. At the end of the day, we trust in God's judgment. We trust in God's work. We trust in God who always keeps his promises. God who has shown us how much he loves us through Jesus. And so that should give us an ability to be able to ride through the hard things that happen in our lives. So as we wrap up our message, I want us to reflect on this question as we head into this week. Where is suffering leading me? If you look at the teaching notes that we've looked at today, there's a number of things where I've said suffering leads to certain things. These few key focus areas that suffering can lead us to a sense of hope. So if we're going through difficult times right now, or if we know someone who's going through a difficult time right now, How can we help them to be able to see that maybe their suffering is leading them to a deeper sense of hope in the future, 
hope in God's perspective, hope in what God is doing. Perhaps the suffering that we're going through can lead us to a deeper sense of connection, a deeper sense of connection with God because we throw ourselves on God in a deeper way, but also a deeper sense of connection with the people around us. In those times where we're struggling and where we're suffering, we often throw ourselves onto other people to say, I need you in the midst of the circumstances that I'm going through. Perhaps suffering can lead us to a deeper sense of trust, to a deeper sense of faith, a deeper sense of reminding ourselves why what we believe is so crucial, why what Jesus has done for us makes such a difference for us. So as we finish today, our message, I want to give an opportunity uh, to be able to pray for us. Uh, Often we just kind of leave that more general. Um, But yesterday at the Churches of Christ Convention, there was an opportunity that was given uh, for people who were struggling with different things to be able to stand. And it was just a really beautiful moment. And I felt like in the midst of what we're talking about today, it's a great opportunity as well. And so if you are going through suffering, whatever that looks like in your life right now, or if you're really close to someone else who you know is going through suffering, I want to give you an opportunity to be able to stand so that we can pray with you as you go through what you're going through. To be able to pray for healing and to be able to pray that God would rescue you from the situations that you're facing, but also to be able to pray for these things, to pray for a sense of hope, to pray for a sense of perseverance, to pray for a deeper sense of connection, a deeper sense of trust and confidence in what God is doing. So, We're going to all close our eyes so that there's no sense of awkwardness around this. But if you would like prayer specifically because of something that you're going through, then I want to encourage you to stand just so that we can say, yes, we're with you in the midst of the circumstances that you're going through. So I'll give you a moment to ponder. And then uh, if you'd like to stand, feel free. And then we'll pray. God, I know that there are a number of people who are part of our church family that are going through really difficult times right now. Some of that is because of physical suffering, because of illness, because of sickness, because of disease, because of pain. We know that for others, there are other circumstances that are causing a sense of suffering, that life is really hard right now. And so we pray because, Jesus, we know that you are ultimately the great healer that when you were here on this earth, that you did have the ability to heal people of the struggles and the things that they were going through. And so we do believe that you have the power to be able to bring healing. And so we desire that in these situations. We pray that you would bring healing into the lives of those who are going through difficult times. But we also know that in the midst of that, sometimes you don't bring your healing to us because you have a deeper perspective You have a greater sense of what's going on than just what's happening for us in the moment. That as we go through difficult times, as we go through suffering, there's often clarity that comes that can't come through any other set of circumstances. There is a greater sense of us throwing ourselves on you that wouldn't happen when we're just pressing the cruise control button. And so for these people who are standing, 
for the people who are connected with our church family, for the people that we're aware of in our wider circles. My prayer is for a sense of perseverance in the midst of difficult times, that as we work through whatever it is that we're going through, that we would know that you have not abandoned us, you haven't left us, that you are with us, that you are acutely aware of what's going on in our lives and that you would help us to recognise that the hard things that we're going through can ultimately lead us to a place where we have a greater sense of hope, a greater sense of confidence in who you are, a greater sense of connection with who you are, a greater sense of deepening our relationship with you, a greater sense of connection with the people around us as we ask them to support us and walk with us through the difficult times that we're going through that ultimately these times can deepen our trust in you, that as we come out the other side of them, we can get to a place where we have a much more solid faith that then enables us to be people of hope who can then make a difference in the lives of those around us. So I pray that right now in this moment, the people who are standing, those who are connected with us, would have a tangible sense of your presence, a tangible sense of knowing that you are with them in what they're going through and that they would have a sense of hope for the future. In your name we pray. Amen.